Nana University. We're here to learn and to teach. Um, but what is it that we're learning and teaching? Are we learning and teaching knowledge? Um, or are we thinking about what the ancients used to call practical philosophy? So skills to help us all cope better with the adversities and existential uncertainties that life inevitably will throw at us. Um, is this a task for the humanities? Or is it best left to the professionals? And uh, what even is well-being? And is it even possible to teach it? So these are all complicated questions that we're here to discuss today. So with me um, are, in no particular order, uh, Dr. Ruth Fletcher, a senior lecturer in the School of Law, specialising in medical law. Shamima Akhtar, who is the incoming uh, Queen Mary Student Union's Vice President of Welfare and comes to us fresh from doing exams, so we are very <laughs> grateful to her for being uh, here. Professor Kambui, who is the Queen Mary Head of the Centre for Psychiatry and the Deputy Director of the Wolf Wolfson Institute of Preventative Medicine at Barts and the London. Um, Jules Evans, a research fellow on the Living with Feeling project at the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. Um, Kevin Halon, who is the Queen Mary Counselling Manager. And Niall Morrissey, who is the Queen Mary Mental Health Coordinator. And I've asked everyone to prepare a brief, kind of three-minute introduction to this question, to, to their work, to what they think the situation that we're facing now is. So um, I, we haven't, in fact, agreed a kind of running order for this. So would you like to volunteer? Someone would like to volunteer to go first? I will. Oh, what a hero. <laughs> and I'm going to set my trusty uh, iPhone for three minutes to interrupt you uh, uh, when, when that time is up so that we can stay on course. Right. So Take I think we can't deny, you know, there's a massive narrative of crisis in student mental health. We, you know, when I started, I saw 160 students. That was my caseload. Um, at the moment, it's kind of, I'd say, about 750 um, students that we see. And the, the students that we're seeing tend to present much more complex issues than when I started. Um, as an example, the prevalence of depression um, in the general population is about 2.9 hours, is 29% in those 750 students that we have, um, slightly less last year. Um, there's loads of reasons people are going to talk about it, but there's you know 21st century living, there's a lack of resource and um, investment in young people's mental health, although that is changing a little bit now because the government has freed up some money. Um, so I think we need to kind of rethink the narrative, um, and you know, your question about can we embed well-being into university um, uh, living? I think we can actually. I think we can teach it. Um, there's a lot of work being done already within our university around um, positive psychology. You know, just um, there's a great example of a course in Yale. You probably know about it. It's called the um, Psychology and Good Life, aka the Happiness Module. So they identified that for students to get into Yale in the first place, they developed a lot of maladaptive coping techniques. So they isolated themselves, they developed perfectionism, uh, they lost any sense of mindfulness. So they teach them, uh, I think it's like a 13 week uh, course uh, where they teach students to be mindful, to um, dwell on the things that are positive in their lives and things like that. So it's, and it's, like, it's the most popular um, module in Yale at the moment, so like 1,200 students took it. Bangor are doing something very similar as well. Um, I think what we need to work on um, is the damage that has kind of been done unintentionally, obviously uh, lower down tier in the education system. So, you know, SATs at six-year-old 
uh, GCSEs, there's real pressure um, on students to to perform, you know, so the head teachers, Ofsted, all these people, it's constant pressure all the time. I think we need to change that. Um, we need to embed well-being uh, at a much earlier age. Um, and I was saying to Cam earlier, there's a really good example of a, a model called iThrive, um, which is developed by um, a range of different um, unis and the Anna Floyd uh, Centre for Young People. Um, and they've got a really good example in Camden where they have clinicians that go in and try and deal with issues um, in very socio-economic deprived uh, student population. And they work with parents, they work with teachers, they work with difficult students, they offer therapy, and it's, you know, the results are quite good at the moment. So I think we could be doing a lot more as a university, um, teach well-being, uh, embedded into the curricula, um, and there's lots of good examples of how we can do that. Thank you, Vince. Great. Well, should, we, should we move down this way? Sure. Sure. Thanks. Um, so I came at this as somebody who teaches just across the way there in, in the law school as uh, someone who teaches medical law. And so thinking about the question of whether we should teach about well-being in that context, embedding it in our ordinary courses rather than having, I suppose, specific courses, maybe uh, focusing on promotion of well-being. So, and the second uh, perspective I brought to it was just thinking about somebody who researches then on sexual and reproductive well-being and who does voluntary, you know, public legal education around that. And so I was trying to think about, you know, the, the methods that we bring to teaching core courses in the legal curriculum and then the public legal education activities that we're also engaged in and how might we think about um, well-being in that context. And the first thing I thought of was, you know, I spent lots of time teaching about health and about law, but we're often focused on, you know, how we reduce the harms and how we enable people to um, engage with legal regulation and to claim their rights and to claim their desires in that regard. Um, and often when we're focusing on removing the harms and tackling the obstacles, important though that is, we're not really focused on the positive side of things. What do we think well-being is? And how is it experienced for our students? And thinking about the diversity of experiences of well-being that students bring to the classroom. Well-being is going to be very different, we know, you know for me, um, from my uh, background of doing what I do, as distinct from you know, someone living with dementia in their 80s, as distinct from uh, a trans teen who's just come from high school to university. So there's very multiple experiences of well-being and how do we integrate that sort of vision into um, a context in, across the curriculum in that way. So when I was thinking about that, my answer to the question, I guess, was a, a, a hesitant yes. Um, I'd like to be you know, sharing more positive conceptions, um, more research and more strategies about what well-being is and how we experience it differently. And, but at the same time, that, I think, yeah, there's definitely scope for that, but I'm hesitant about it because, you know, again, thinking about the research literature on promotion of well-being and um, happiness, um, you know, and as a critical feminist engaged in public legal education around these issues, I'm really conscious of how, you know, as soon as we um, set something into the university curriculum, you know, it becomes an object of governance. It becomes, we have targets in that regard. And, you know, I want to be accountable and participatory in that regard and, you know, do a lot of my work in that way. But there's a danger that we turn it into something then that is a high expectation, that is monitored. And, you know, as Sarah Ahmad says in The Promise of Happiness, it, sometimes 
the, the promotion of well-being becomes about the promotion and not about the well-being, you know? So I think that's the a concern I have about integrating it into the curriculum, is that we might not do that well-being well enough. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so that's one of the challenges, I guess. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you very much. Um, um, I guess I'd like to uh, sort of speak up for the sort of what you might call a psychological emotional uh, perspective, which isn't, of course, standing in contrast to a mental health perspective, but I think it is slightly different. And, and clearly, there have been lots of rises in those people with diagnosable mental health, mental illness conditions, um, and that's clear across the board, clear in Nile's service and in our service. But I guess people who come to the counselling service here. Queen Mary, it, it may be helpful to talk in terms of their anxiety and depression, but it may not be only helpful to do that. And I think very often what it can do to, to use those diagnostic words is to close down more open thinking and more flexible thinking and the, the possibility of the emotional processing, which can often be very useful to move people forward. And I think the work that we do and the work that we often do with students, and sometimes we lose sight of it in the kind of anxieties around the mental health debate, is about developmental work to move people emotionally forward. And of course this is a developmentally very important time, um, the move from late adolescence to, to adulthood, which a lot of our students are, are, are embarking on, um, which involves obviously separation from family to varying degrees, increasing autonomy, and it's challenging emotionally, psychologically, socially, in terms of relationships with family, with community. And obviously there's been, um, uh, it's always been an emo emotionally very demanding time at this, this, this uh, time at university. And there are particular reasons, I think, which a lot of people are talking about, about why the increases in demand. And obviously the pressures of the educational system, which have been mentioned, um, the positive of the fact that there's less stigma and more um, awareness societal, cultural anxieties, political anxieties, economic pressures. Um, I think also the pervasive sense of always being seen and always being judged. And I think obviously social media has something to do with that. But also maybe the pathologizing of what might be quite normal emotional, psychological difficulty. Is it okay to fail, to struggle? And are we okay to provide the support that we do at university to understand that and to be alongside people in their struggles. And I think that's, that's an important point. So I think universities can do a great deal to support students, working through their difficulties in the process of development. But I think also what's very important is that it's not all the responsibility of universities. I think there's a danger of a political diversionary tactic in which universities are expected to do everything. And I think uh, this is particularly true when there are difficulties around funding the NHS. Um, around NHS access for young people. I think it, uh, it, there's a danger that universities are expected to do everything and if something goes wrong with universities are to blame. And I think we need to work carefully in collaboration with other partners rather than expecting that we do, we do everything. Um, finally, arts and humanities, I think, and all the ac academic culture at the university could, uh, it's to do with professional relationships, it's to do with the relational and the interpersonal. And I think the relationships of teaching and the reciprocity of learning are the cl critically important things here, as, as much as the content of courses. Great. Great. Um, hi, uh, my name is Jules Evans. Um, I am a 
historian of emotions and philosopher, and I teach on a well-being course with the psychology department. So it's kind of mixed psychology and uh, philosophy and some history of ideas. Um, I'm also researching this topic about how universities approach flourishing, so I'm mainly here to listen, and it's fascinating to, to learn. Um, I would make maybe kind of three opening points um, one is that we don't yet know, we, we can see certain kind of these kind of crisis points happening in terms of the number of students reporting for help and so on. We can see that 40% of PhDs in one survey uh, had some kind of an emotional disorder. But we don't know quite um, why this is happening uh, and we don't know what would work to, to kind of deal with it. So there's a need for more research. And I've been struck looking at this that universities are sometimes quite bad at studying themselves. Like the eye can't look back on itself. So um, I think this is a kind of a fascinating topic for research. Secondly, I think we can connect the research that is taking place better. There's lots of interesting researchers happening at Queen Mary around all different aspects of this topic, but we very rarely connect and get together and meet each other. Um, so I think that could happen a lot better. I, I think the university in its new vision statement has talked about setting up new uh, kind of strategic centers for research. Um, I would love if one of those kind of centres was around some of these areas, just to connect some of the expertise already in this university, um, both for research and practice and for wellbeing so, um, services as well. Um, and finally, I think that this, this could be something not just on the periphery, like when we talk about the wellbeing crisis, like when students break down, then they go for counselling, but something right at the centre of inquiry and, and of something to do with the, the goal of what the university is there for as in to help people flourish. If you look at the history of, of universities, the idea that universities were there to help people flourish would be quite standard and orthodox. However, of course, they had it much simpler in those days, because if you wanted to help students flourish, you just teach them to be Christians, for example, in the Middle Ages. We're now in the era of the multiversity, so this is one of the problems, trying to set one you know, path to well-being for such a complex multicultural university. is not going to fly, is it? But I think it might be possible to both um, create courses like the, the one that I work on, which gives people some practical kind of techniques which seem to be evidence-based, but also create a space for more of a kind of critical discussion about what flourishing means for different people, uh, for, for, diff you know, for men and women, for different uh, faiths as well. So I think we can get a balance between that kind of evidence-based positive psychology type stuff and more of a kind of critical humanities type thing. For example, Bristol has just launched, they've got very worried about um, student suicides, they put a lot of money into, into new wellbeing, they launched a new kind of science of happiness course. But, um, I mean, there is some evidence that the more you focus on happiness as a goal, uh, the less happy you get. So I think it is good to have that kind of critical space for people to decide, well, do we definitely want happiness? Might be grumpy. <laughs> yeah, is that okay? Yeah. Um, Great, thank you. Um, so I work as a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and also as a public health lead. Uh, there's no doubt there is an increase in levels of mental distress and mental illnesses in the population at large, and I'm not sure universities are unique in experiencing some of these challenges. They're evident in the workplace too. Uh, but public health and public mental health in particular is saying, well, look, we can't afford to give everyone a service. The majority of people don't get any service. Three quarters of people with anxiety, depression, get nothing at the moment. So we have to be thinking in a different way about our own health and well-being, about whether we are physically active, well-nourished, whether we have friendships, whether we're loved, whether we uh, enjoy life, whether we have meaning and purpose. And all these are relevant to 
uh, our populations. Young people are facing a particular critical period in their lives, so half of people uh, who will have mental illness as adults will have expressed symptoms already by the age of 14, practically all of them by the age of 24, so it's the highest peak for new onset illnesses and we're facing those communities in these institutions. More and more people are coming into universities now, about half of all young people come to universities, so it's not a surprise uh, that we are seeing more of an upsurge. And of course the economic context, the pressures they're under, the the emphasis on achievement, the uh, governance that we're all facing, increasingly we're into a commercial relationship with our students a lot of the time, rather than an interpersonal pastoral care relationship, where we have flexibility. We can't be too uh, hands-on, we can't be too much, and we separate out the pastoral from the learning experience. And learning experiences are challenging and difficult for all. So wellbeing services are relevant, but I, I would argue they're not something for people with mental illness who need a service. I, I think there's a confusion that if someone is severely and anxious. 20% of young people in, in student in uh, higher education institutions will have suicidal ideas in their lifetime, 7% within the last year, about 0.5% will have attempted suicide in the last year. So the numbers actually at risk are very small, but it's common and, uh, quite common to have distress and difficulties, and we've got to find better ways of dealing with it. There are some solutions, um, but they're not obvious, and I would argue rather than teach well-being, we have to have be a whole system of well-being for every person in the institution, from the top executive committees all the way to the bottom. You know, people at the top of the organisation are no happier than people who are actually delivering teaching and people who are receiving teaching. I think the whole system needs to be revolutionised. There are some examples of good practice. So um, in psychiatry, Anya Curzon is running a well-med pro programme for medical students and dental students. It's particularly relevant because if they're not functioning, they need to declare that openly because it's, uh, it risks their GMC registration, it risks them never working again. They have to manage that so it's presented in a professional framework of how do you look after yourself, how do you stay healthy, how do you manage your emotions, how do you not drink so much, how do you avoid taking drugs, how do you keep healthy relationships. I've developed a resource called Mental Health for Life which is an online intervention which is aimed at every citizen knowing the minimum level they need to know about mental health, being able to go through a learning programme, assess themselves but also look after themselves and their family with one action. And it, there are special modules for adults, for emergency services, for other areas. Uh, I, I was going to talk a bit about the arts, but I'll come to that in the discussion. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Shuima. I'm the incoming vice president of welfare. And I'm really nervous. I've never been a panel member before. <laughs> um, but yeah, I came at this with the, with the perspective of being a student and what my personal experiences are. Because as everyone else has talked about, I don't know half the things they're talking about. I don't know the statistics and stuff like that, but what I do know is what I went through personally and how this university played a role in helping me or whether or not they helped me um, get past that. Now, as um, most of my personal experiences um, with mental health and um, traumatic experiences happened within the university, so the university played a key role in dealing with that. Now, I'm an estranged student. I don't have contact with my family, and that impacts me and my studies a lot because um, it obviously leads to a lot of like emotional um, mental health disorders that I've been diagnosed with, such as depression and PTSD, anxiety, quite a lot. And that has played a huge impact on the way I um, perform at university. And being an ETH student, we're constantly under pressure to perform, whether that's constantly having to hand in coursework, constantly doing being a final year student, doing a dissertation and stuff like that. And I feel like one of the best ways university plays a role is how they centre the module around 
a student and their struggles. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. So like module organization, I feel like is so important. Right now we don't have like, um, sorry, am I still online? Um, um, so I feel like the university needs to understand that students need time and support. And if we have, for example, one student support officer per thousand students, I feel like that puts a lot of pressure on the student support officer to perform and actually empathise with the students and understand their struggles and that's where it lacks, um, that's where the university is lacking. So support amongst, um, the direct support student get, students get is really important. And oh, I wanted to talk about so much, my mind's just gone blank, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Maybe it happens to me as well, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, so well, we carry on the conversation yeah, now, so there'll be plenty of chances to, 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 no, it's, it's great. Um, I realised that I forgot to do something at the beginning, which is I forgot to introduce myself, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> Dr. I'm Dr. Tiffany Watt-Smith, I'm in the, um, the lecture in, in drama department, um, and I'm also involved with the Centre for the History of the Emotions, which is, which is why I became interested in this topic and, and, this, um, and, this, um, and this panel today. Hang on, let me just make sure that this doesn't... Uh, go off. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so many interesting um, themes have come up, and and uh, and one of the things that's very dear to my heart is this question about um, a diversity of of well-being and what well-being looks like. And one of the things that drives me a bit mad is going seeing posters that say, you know, protect your well-being. You know, eat well, but you know, eating well isn't easy for everyone. Or you know, accept yourself. But you know, accepting yourself can be a target that we all fail at, and then we feel even more miserable about ourselves. So, so I was really excited by, um, by by putting that in the foreground. So I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you actually to expand a little bit on that notion of a diversity of well-being, and perhaps the other panel members might want to chip in what that might look like, and, and perhaps you too might be able to suggest, you know, what 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 might, uh, how might we sort of counter this model of a sort of one single positive. Uh, vision of what well-being is to, to, to encompass the diversity of it. Well, I, I don't have a well-worked-out answer to that uh, for all the reasons I was talking about earlier in, in the sense of not having done enough on it yet, so I'm really glad for the opportunity here to meet, meet everybody and talk about it, but I suppose one of the things I was thinking about was just how we have to, um, as people have been saying, acknowledge like the structural reasons and the systemic reasons why people are unhappy and that people are very differently positioned in relation to that. Um, and then I was thinking one of the strategies, I suppose, um, around trying to acknowledge that and recognize that, you know, what, what will be a positive experience or something that somebody might want to share could be a very negative experience for someone else. And so I was thinking about ways in which, you know, we might come at this sideways. So for me, when I'm teaching law, are there ways in which, you know, I can kind of integrate a concern around different experiences of, of well-being into my, my everyday teaching? And one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, there's this area of research called legal consciousness, where we talk about the everyday life experience of law, and you know, we often get the students to to talk about, you know, their experience of law and start with that. And so, in in teaching medical law, one of the one of the ways in which we have kind of indirectly got at well-being is when people talk about organ donation or blood donation, for example, right? And so they'll often talk about, you know, their positive experience of signing up, you know, to donate. And that will often be a kind of like exchange of um, feeling good about doing something for someone else. 
Um, but then, you know, that might be the starting point that people talk about, but about that experience of, of doing something medical. Um, and we, and, but they don't talk about it necessarily to each other. They don't necessarily realize that that consent maybe could be put aside in some circumstances. And then, the, then when, we, the, when the conversation keeps going, reasons why people might not want to donate come out and their negative experiences of healthcare and ways in which they have been negatively experienced in the past and also ways in which people have been excluded from donating um, because of past sexual behaviours or um, drug experience, different things that it might be. So in that sense, right, something like that, that students have sort of thought about as a, a thing that they do that makes them feel good and um, a chance to, for everybody. Everybody. Yeah. to reflect yeah. on that. And I want to come back to this question of consent in, in a moment, actually. But um, uh, what does the phrase well-being mean to you? I mean, I guess it has lots of different meanings. Yeah, I, this is what I wanted to say earlier. As a student, well-being, like the complexity of well-being changes um, very depending on your own situation. So with mine, it's very complex because there's so many different factors that tie into my well-being, mm. whether it's academic pressure, personal life pressure, and pressure from family. As a BME student as well, the family pressure and the time pressure comes very, um, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of pressure mm. to perform and do well academically. Mm. But then again, with others it might be, it might range to a different spectrum and it can go to just anxiety and depression that they've had for a longer period of time coming into university. Mm. So I feel like understanding the complexity and being able to cater to the different complexities is really important. Mm. And I think university needs to like start to address the fact that there are issues that um, different students go through, and and we need to start treating mental health disorders and like um, similarly as we do with our physical health because we don't give um, mental health uh, issues the same um, priority as we do with physical health, mm -hmm. and it's not promoted as much. Mm -hmm. more addressing. So trying to understand systemic yeah. issues that might lead to difficulties with yeah. mental health. Is there a kind of, do we have a sort of working definition of well-being? Because, I mean, you made the, was it you that made the important point that we need to distinguish between well-being that we're talking about here and um, a serious sort of mental health situation? So there's lots of dispute about definitions and also dispute about whether you can be well and be ill at the same time. So mm. if, if there's someone with severe depression or schizophrenia, can they be well? And of course the recovery movement says, don't define me by my illness. Of course I can be well, I can be contented, I can live with what I have. Uh, but there's other evidence showing that actually your overall life chances are poor, that you you may be content with what you've got, but you've got to manage your expectations. And of course, we know of people living well and enjoying their life, living in horrible situations, deprived environments. So mm. it is a moving feast and depends what your expectations are. But for me, well-being is really about um, being content in your skin, being happy with relationships, um, existing in a place of kindness and compassion having confidence in the ability to speak and be who you are, who you want to be, and not constantly being constrained. Um, you know, of all the things, if we have to think about what is it we could do with Queen Mary, you know, apart from research, and there's a lot out there on work stress, and it's about having um, a working relationship which is kind and compassionate, and people can have, still discuss difficult things and make difficult decisions, but to be honest and be, um, and take care of each other in the process. Mm -hmm. When people feel they're not so well and they find that they're facing a structural problem they can't change, that they're disempowered. Mm -hmm. And if they do feel 
um, you're treated or badly done by it's very hard for them to say that particularly mm. if you're a student particularly if you're a woman particularly if you're um, in a, you know isolated in some shape mm. or form or you've had previous traumas or difficulties that nobody knows about and your own ability to process your emotions is challenged mm. that's one space in which the arts I think can function to help people both expose the problems and have them not discussed more widely but also as a as a way of exploring um, there's a UKRI network uh, funded by SRC, which is looking at the role of social and cultural assets, you know, gardening, walking, in improving population mental health mm. beyond any conventional intervention in services as such. And we all need more of that, I think. Mm. And I think we under underestimate the importance of that in the current day world. The kind and compassionate, I mean, great words, kind and compassionate university. You know, how, I mean, this is a question for everyone, really. Um, you know, how do we foster those? How do we teach that? I think you have to live it. Um, yes, we can be avail ourselves of the knowledge that there is out there, uh, and we have to also acknowledge that not everybody has that aptitude and ability to function that way. We all see different aspects of the world, and, and we're not perhaps available to notice that different people function differently and require different. You know, students are different. We're giving them a one-size-fits-all course with increasing pressure, with fewer staff per head of student, with more students in every year. Mm -hmm. It's more impersonal. It's harder to know whether we are looking after people, mm -hmm. and whether what to us is an ordinary statement of governance or management or care is for them a feeling of victimisation and an impingement on their, mm -hmm. on their health and well-being. But it has to start at all levels of an organisation. It can't be that we teach students and you know, the neoliberal notion of that they will go away and fix themselves and that the rest of us can carry on doing what we want. It's not going to happen that way. It's not going to work. And I think staff would also want to live in and work in a place which is healthier and happier mm. uh, and what we know is that it's not just the responsibility of the institution but it's also responsibility of people and the public at large to manage themselves outside of their working situations as well as in their work situations. Um, now you, you mentioned that um, integrating a well-being into the curriculum um, and is there are there sort of I mean you mentioned this one example of an actual course which was there to sort of teach well-being yeah. or um, teach ha I think the happiness uh, you said um, are there other ways in which you could Im imagine uh, embedding this kind, compassionate uh, stance in teaching? Uh, it's a difficult one because I think you have to think about the environment and the different environments of, in the university as a whole. So are the environments, and I mean, you know, like the regulatory environment, the physical environment, are they conducive to well-being? Um, and I think a lot of them aren't, actually. I remember when I came to higher education from the NHS, um, I was shocked because I met a, a final year student and um, they couldn't finish their dissertation or no, they, it wasn't that they, um, they had to sit uh, an exam and delay some of the resets um, and like a few years ago that meant that you couldn't graduate, you, you couldn't, final year students couldn't take um, missed exams in the late summer period in August so they had to take like, the next possible um, opportunity which was uh, in May, uh, May, June the following year so I was like, really? And he said, yes, the regulations. These are the regulations. Um, so I think we need to kind of look at them a bit more closely and see are they conducive to the well-being of students and to staff. Um, also, like the experiences that different students experience in different schools. So in English and drama, you know, I write an email. Can this student have a, an extension? You know, grand, no problems. Somewhere else, you know, they have to get like a letter from a, a GP and. Um, or in, in English and drama, they say, well, just hand it in when it's ready. You know, it takes a significant amount of 
uh, stress off you. In EECS, it's different, you know, and you mentioned the student support officers. You know, there's one student support officer for these massive uh, schools, um, and they just can't keep up with the, the level of demand um, and students who are not well, you know, they're um, really stressed out about everything, of course. Um, and it all still depends on who the student support officer yeah. is, because, you know, you can have, like, a good one, and then yeah. that person leaves, then, like, a not-so-good one comes in, and the whole kind of uh, system collapses. So um, it's very unfair because it's really unfair. So unfair I think we need someone um, to kind of look at it from above, really, and just see how can we change the regulations, and that has to be at the kind of highest level. And I know you kind of mentioned yeah, in, your, in the email you said you kind of had thoughts about that. Um, um, yeah, I suppose. I mean, I've been at Queen Mary for kind of seven years, and I see one-off initiatives happening. Um, but uh, I think there could be more coordination and of a kind of clear policy. I, th I believe, maybe the people in the audience know better than this, but I leave, believe the university is in the process of formulating a kind of well-being strategy at the moment. But um, I, I think it, it probably does have to be led from the top, yeah. uh, right at the top, as in the, 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 the principal, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and the vice principals, may, you know, coordinating. It's very difficult for, for, for us to do it. I mean, I, I emailed the principal who I've never met and, and suggested, you know, when they're asking for feedback on the, the strategy and suggested putting more in about well-being. There was, I think, one mention about helping us, helping students flourish. But I think, you know, it could be much more holistic in terms of staff as well, in terms of PhDs. So, um, and it's interesting um, in terms of the resistance to these kinds of initiatives. Um, it is often from uh, heads of faculty, particularly over the sacred curriculum. The, co you know, the control of the curriculum is all important. So for example, at Harvard University, the president of Harvard was very into these kinds of initiatives, like introduce things like, say, meditation or happiness courses, but he couldn't really get the uh, faculty heads on board. And, and you know, in some ways, universities, they're more like feudal regimes. You've got very powerful different faculties, and actually the central authority isn't always that strong. Um, so that's one thing I've felt about the kind of the difficulty about with such a big organization like this about actually having a clear strategy on this. Mm. But I mean, just to go back to your point about what other things could we do? For example, um, look at the massively high dropout rates for PhDs and, and the kind of how awful it sometimes is to do PhDs. Like, could, we, we, we must be able to kind of help, you know, give, give a new PhD students some some basic kind of help or even like a kind of like a little pamphlet on some of the kind of <laughs> thing, ways to take care of themselves. Ways don't do it in the first place. <laughs> don't do it, yeah, so, I mean something like that uh, would, would seem pretty easy. Another thing you could do, rather than trying to get the whole thousands of students to do one curriculum, which is going to be tricky, um, I like what University of Derby's done, which is to try uh, just to have some, some module on well-being within we each course, but it's kind of tailored for each course. So for example, music students often reported uh, performance anxiety, so they would have just one class about that. History students, we could have something on the history of well-being, like looking at that. Just So each different course could have some little kind of class or, or, or component looking at well-being through, the, through you know, a particular lens. For example, medical students could have something about doctors and, and well-being. So that's one way that could be done where it's not just like this is the uh, mm -hmm. the well-being bible which you must all follow, mm -hmm. you know.
Yes, I was curious about whether that course that was very popular, the happiness course, mm. whether that was um, uh, whether everyone had to take that or whether no, 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 absolutely not. It's a chosen. Yeah. It's kind of like um, the Queen, the Queen Mary model. That mm. I don't know what's happened to that, but um, <laughs> 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 where well you could choose one, and uh, it and it is the most chosen. It is the course. most chosen course. Yeah. Um, I think there is a danger actually, in, in especially in places like Harvard. I, you know, I used to to recently work in Oxford. There, there's a danger of students signing up for those courses in order to perfect themselves, mm. yeah. or yes. to, yeah, yeah. or or to add happiness to their CV. Yeah. And I think I would speak up for grumpiness too. Mm. And I would, you know, which one of the things that's a bit worrying about some of the terminology, including well-being, yeah. is its positivity. I think mm. there's something deadening about it, mm. and there's something deadening about quite a lot of the language around mental health. Mm. It's when we start talking like this, maybe digging down, or talking about possible individual conversations that you might have in the classroom or that you might have in the therapy room is when people start talking about their individual experience mm -hmm. and sharing experience and, and really talking about what's really going on mm -hmm. as opposed to the code words that we hear all the time in the media around mental health. And I think well-being is one of those words that we hear an awful lot, which is both too positive and too uh, deadening for me. Is there the, the, when, when you start talking about the reality of what it could actually mean, playfully, creatively, thoughtfully, when you hit, when you, when it ties into thinking about people's individual stories, and I think that's where the arts and humanities is very important, then it starts coming to life. Mm -hmm. But if it does have a sort of a pervasive sense of everybody must do, be doing this, or this is the course in order to teach that, mm -hmm. I think that can be extremely uh, weird. Mm -hmm. The, is there also a danger <coughs> that the well-being rhetoric it becomes a kind of fig leaf for covering over? Because the, the conversations that you're talking about are expensive to facilitate. Yeah, that is the problem. That is the so problem. I think we, you know, when we, when students come to us and have individual 50-minute appointments, we can feel the sort of privilege of that space <coughs> from the student's point of view, because it's not something which happens very often. Uh, with enormous numbers of students and one student support officer for a thousand students, and so it is a it can be a transformative experience, but it doesn't happen enough, and for understandable reasons, it's it's not happening around the university enough of it. Enough really. Would that be would that reflect your experience here at Queen Mary's? The, those one-to-one -one conversations, not necessarily even just within the counselling service, but even with lecturers and peers, is, does that does that happen as much as it needs to? It doesn't. I feel like, as an English student going to computer science and with 400 people in a lecture hall with one lecturer, the only time you get to speak to that lecturer is either when you make an appointment, or um, and the appointment would last 10-15 minutes, and or at the end of a lecture where you have to go up to the stage to talk to them. And that can be quite daunting for a lot of people, including me. I have never spoken to a single one of my lecturers privately, because I couldn't do that. Um, so I feel like things like that is really important, but it's not facilitated mm. for students to have that opportunity to talk to their lecturers, mm. to allow for a one-to-one -one relationship to be built mm. so that the lecturers can understand the student situation and what they're going through mm. and sort of help the student have a better uh, module and course. Mm. And even for the students to be heard. Yeah, I think it's really important because even trying to get a hold of the student support officer get to um, go up to them and talk to them but the most the most you get to speak to them is about oh um can I get an EC form? How do I EC? Or they'll be like um go to the GP 
never a proper um, deep conversation about how you're doing and how I need help. Mm. So it's usually just the administrative level. Mm. So the, yeah, so more more money and yeah. resources is is is, is needed. Um, this question about how to um, embed. Um, embed teaching well-being into the curriculum. Uh, we've got examples of single courses and possible sort of bolt-on, uh, you know, uh, seminars within existing modules. Is there something more um, sort of deep within the ways in which we teach that we can try and create? So what you're describing, you know, one a lecturer there, you know, hundreds of people, you know, no contact whatsoever. Is there some different way we can conceptualise how we teach to try and create these environments where well-being can... Um, emerge as a model of kind of what, what you say, kind and compassionate. So, I mean, so I mean, WellMed Pro for the students is something that could be rolled out, but but it is about presenting it as a as a uh, how to flourish. I think it's another way of defining well Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, and here, you Thank you. But but there are other, there are other. I just want to say that it's, we kind of know what the problems are, mm -hmm. you know. And, and the, the challenge for us here is that there's enough intelligence in the room and in the institution to know what the problems are and therefore how we need to rethink what we're doing. Even if it's inconvenient, it doesn't make business sense to have a non-sustainable model of teaching which makes students and staff sick. Mm. Um, and it's, it's problematic to continue in that vein. And if the college wants to be unique, it could be unique in that ambition and that vision that actually we are a place people will survive and come and work at and do well from. And our customers, you know, staff as well as students, are our biggest ambassadors. So if they have a poor experience, um, we're going to damage our own reputation. So I think there's something about courage and leadership. And I don't just mean leadership at the top, I mean all the way through, to live our everyday experiences differently and to question procedures and practices and not allow these to carry on in the guise that somehow they're things we can't do anything about but it does need commitment from the whole organisation mm. to listen and be willing to look at these things mm. and it's not uncommon that all institutions struggle with structural issues around gender and disadvantage and around stress and around inequalities but it does need that completely systemic approach to make it work it's not about targeting one bit of that system to mm. change things sorry I just wanted to say that to give Andrew a moment to mm. <laughs> Want to say what it is? Yeah. Well, um, just just very quickly, we have actually embedded well-being into the curriculum, and this is the first year that we're rolling it out. So we have a medical professionalism course, which is a mandatory course for our medical students, and the very last component of that is learning about how to take care of themselves and their well-being, and something that, that has been continued throughout the course. And the most important, the most important point that I would like to make is that well-being is not the absence of. It's reaching 
actually we can all be done. shortly open up to, 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 to questions. But thank you very much because it's really great to have an example of, of how this might be you know, possible in practice. Um, but I did want to ask about this question of, of, um, of consent. Um, you know, th this, is a, this is a course that everyone is taking. Is that yes. right? Yeah. Um, is we, that we have it on a menu, so it's not like you have to go and do these things. Okay. But you have to do something. Okay. And you have to kind of engage with it and take up whatever your choice are. We have supervisors to help guide them, but it's ultimately yeah. the student's choice. Yeah. So I, I don't mean in particular, um, you know, particularly to, to this course, but I was curious about generally as we kind of contemplate the idea of teaching well-being, mm -hmm. Reed, I wanted to ask you particularly about this. Do, do you foresee any questions or issues around consent? Well, I, I think it brings us back to those issues, isn't it? How do we create the environment? You know, how do we do how to take a public health perspective and create the environment and the conditions, you know, that people can engage? But at the same time, yeah, like people have a right to refuse, they have a right to be grumpy and, you know, different, you know, so, so we yeah, we have to have that balance kind of between um, things. And often it might be because, you know, because people have alternative ways of, they don't necessarily want to do it in their classroom. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about, again, the diversity of making different kind of spaces available to talk about well-being, I guess. Well, is there a risk of so the alternatives to this, right? So it's mm -hmm. that choice between alternatives. Thing. Yeah. And is there a risk of it ever being patronizing? Yeah. Um, yeah. To me, the discussion we had earlier was, well, I don't know when I was 18, would someone told me to get eight hours sleep, would I have listened to you? <laughs> I don't know. I'm curious. So I, I don't know. What do you think, Camille? I think it can be quite patronising for a lot of students because talking about how you are as a person, like how you're feeling, feelings are something you don't want to talk about. You don't want to address if you're feeling okay, if you're feeling happy. You don't want to talk about them. And getting um, 18 to 21 year olds, um, the undergrads, um, to talk about something and like addressing it on a daily basis can be quite overwhelming for them. Or if even if it's like, built in the module, like they have to go to a seminar every week and talk about their feelings, it can be too much for them. So I don't know how you go go and approach that mm -hmm. and keep a balance between like, like talking about it, dressing it, but not mm -hmm. being too overthinking it. Yeah. Or 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 yes, given a kind of prescriptive yeah. way of doing it that may not that may not may not work for you. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I I just say like I think that's totally that totally makes sense. And it's partly about not forcing people to disclose their emotions. Like, um, I think sometimes when well-being is taught in schools, it's one thing that really winds up Catherine Eccleston. Uh, in some schools, they would have a sharing circle, and you'd have to kind of share. Um, I mean, when I've, I've, I've done courses on um, flourishing at places like prisons, um, and I, I what, I, what I've done, for example, is to approach it in terms of um, ideas, where people can bring in, they can make it, in person if they want and just talk about what, what does it mean to flourish or to be a good person and if they want to bring in their experience they can but it's kind of opt-in rather than compulsory there are also going to be people who are extrovert and introvert uh, some people who, who you know love sharing some people who more want things they can go away and do on their own so um, I don't think this is beyond the wit of, of man and beyond beyond you know intelligent universities that approach these things in a way that's kind of sensitive and pluralist that's key mm -hmm. to give people you know tools in a space to find their own idea of flourishing mm -hmm. rather than you you must fit into this mm -hmm. narrow box and that is harmful but I don't I, I, I think it is possible for, a, for a, a, a smart university like us to 
to, to do it in a way that's more sensitive and pluralist. Ken, mm. you were <coughs> mentioning the um, uh, uh, role of the arts in, in all of this. And I'm kind of conscious that we don't ne have, apart from me, who from drama, we don't have anyone talking to, to, to arts. I was curious what you thought of that. Well, I think the role of arts is enormous, uh, not least because arts are a way of dealing with issues people don't want to talk about. And we might underestimate how much stigma there still is and how uh, much discrimination there still is. Tormented people are by their experiences. The arts are, is a good space through which to open up a problem, create a discussion and a campaign mm -hmm. within an organisation without it being overly piercing. Um, the aesthetics of art allow us to approach this emotion differently, allow us to experiment and role take and consider different ways of being in the world and also learn from other people's experiences in a way that perhaps we don't uh, otherwise get an opportunity to do. It's also a different, not a, not a neurobiologist, a different part of your brain learning all those soft skills that you need at work. You can get your degree, but you may not get employed unless you've got those other skills. Mm -hmm. So I think arts have a big role to play. And um, I'm not thinking, I mean, yes, there are art therapies, but I'm thinking more generally as a way of communicating and sharing. Uh, and, and again, there's a big emphasis in the college on arts um, and the art strategy. So there's an opportunity for the art strategy to be much more cognizant and emotionally informed about how it's even more important than they think it is important mm -hmm. to change the way we work and an emotionally informed or psychologically informed environment in which we work is very important. Just talking about prisons, I mean there's a whole program of psychologically informed environments in prisons. The inmates love it, the staff hate it because it means they've got to work harder and be much more emotionally informed about mm. what they're doing. So um, it, I, I don't think it's about with our abilities and expertise and I think the arts could play a really important role in opening up problems, in educating, but also for any change in motivating people who don't think it's important to don't see how it's going to work, to generate some motivation for why it's important, to bring op open up the experiences you're describing. Our, our university isn't designed around the student journey. Yeah. You know, it's designed around governance and, and uh, regulations. And there were times when we could organize courses very differently, and, and, but that doesn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. We have to have a nice advocacy. What one of the... Um, uh, so I'm taking chair's privilege here, but uh, from, so from my department, what we have, I've had some conversations with my colleagues today about this uh, meeting today, and um, and we were talking about some of the ways in which in drama, um, well-being may already be embedded into the curriculum in part of how we sort of approach uh, learning and um, sort of learning methods. So, for example, all of our students have to collaborate to make theatre pieces and when they are learning and starting to collaborate with each other you know we spend a lot of time talking about mutual respect listening understanding neurodiversity within the group you know that that people some people may be more introverted and some people may be more expressive and all sorts of ways in which we try and foster this kind of kind and compassionate sort of mode of attention and mode of collaboration and mode of, of working and we hope that that sort of is threaded through into the way that we conduct our seminars and the way that we conduct our meetings with our students. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't know anyway, um, you know, whether this kind of um, protects our students um, against uh, difficulties, but I, I am interested in the, in the methods and how it's possible perhaps to, to make well-being approaches not just as kind of topic of the curriculum, but actually a sort of a, a mode or a way of teaching or a, a way of engaging with the students. And now, um, typically, we've, um, we, we, we're coming to uh, close to the end, but I did want to open up uh, a space for uh, further conversation. So, but what I think I might do is I know that Ruth needs to, to go at 7.30. So perhaps we might uh, thank our panellists and then uh, 
uh, refresh our glasses, and then anyone who wants to and can stay on for uh, some further conversation if that suits. So thank you very much for a very interesting So uh, if you would like a glass of wine or juice, um, and there are further cups out uh, outside, um, and um, but uh, I'd like to open uh, any questions from the floor. simple things that we may say oh here's four sessions of like just how to appreciate failure I mean that's and it sounds really patronizing but young people have lost the kind of the ability just to take um, learning from failure um, and I know in, in medicine you know it's kind of beaten into you isn't it to kind of reflect and is it not <laughs> it was beaten into me when I when I trained as an OT you know it was like constantly how is that how did it feel what did, yeah and so we We've lost all those skills, you know. Now people go, um, how not fail? Go online. So you look online, and you know you can kind of find out ways. But we don't experience it ourselves because we're not allowed to. Because you know the education system, as I was saying earlier, our kids aren't allowed to fail. Everything has to be perfect, and mm. um, or someone, you know, they'll get into trouble. So they come to us with this deficit of kind of 
coping and you know a lack of resilience and I know that is a really patronizing you know young people you say oh young people have done any resilience but how they grew up is a completely different kind of paradigm so no wonder you know that they, they don't feel they have resilience so I think we do have to actually reteach uh, you know well, students even, like you've got well, a I, speech I, say, <laughs> I just think that that word experience experience and connection um, when there is a bit of a shortage of that, of that real face-to-face -face yeah. connection or that, that communal group activity in which people are sharing and understanding, I think, I think is a, it becomes particularly important, I think, when there's a shortage of it. And it becomes particularly transformative when there seems to be a shortage of it. So that it, it, when we create spaces for that to happen, I think it can be remarkably staff well-being I mean mm. this it's a new emerging role in a lot of um, universities now like staff well-being manager um, so everyone's really stressed out you know it's not just students and it's just everything all the stress is ricocheting off each other you know and, well, who makes the decision you know who do we speak to to kind of sort out as Jules says you know we're intelligent logical people you know mm. so yeah I mean uh, one thing I would add and uh, and your comment made um, me think about it as well. I mean, like, we need to keep track of, of things, like what works and what doesn't, and, 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 I, and be totally honest about that didn't work, this did work. Because often when universities have done initiatives, they've been one-off, they've been often hugely popular, and then the person leaves, uh, and they, they, it's not replaced, and they don't keep data. Um, so I think the whole higher education system needs to learn how to keep track of what works and what doesn't and then share it with each other. And if it works, keep it going so it's not just a one yeah. year project, but actually... We are, yeah. we are hoping to keep yeah, it going. It's, it's likely <laughs> to keep it going. Yeah, but I mean, and, and, it's, and it's such a, you know, in terms of the arts as well, I mean, it's such a kind of holistic thing, isn't it? All the different things that affect all of our well-being. I mean, the, the housing that students live in is going to be super important. Things like their access to sports is going to be hugely important. Um, things like, do bands have a place where they can go and practice? You think, you know, I just think about all the great bands where they met at a university and went on to become like some of the best bands in the world. Like, do Queen Mary students have places where bands can go and practice and where they can go and play? It's all gone online now. To kind of to show, to sh you know, that's, a, that's so important for like a creative, angry introvert that's how they're going to express themselves and come to terms with their experience. But also, I mean, students, the students that I've taught, uh, you know, I am struck, I mean, when I was a student, you know, I had a grant and I, I did have a part-time job and so on. Some of my students are f facing huge debts. They work extremely long hours in bars and clubs and things and they come in at 9 a.m. because 
you know, unlike me, they're not allowed to skip their lectures. And, um, you know, it's a completely different environment that they're dealing with. And, and yes, yeah. I completely agree that about spaces, the letting off steam and so on, but also the systemic situations that they are facing. Mm. They're all gone. We can't do anything <coughs> about that, I don't think, right now. But what we can do is find ways in which we can support students to kind of engage with, and, and staff, uh, including myself, to engage with the realities of the structures they find themselves in, we find ourselves in. Um. Um, yeah, hi, I just wanted to reflect back on one of the points that seems to be emerging from the panel, which is this idea that rather than creating a one-size-fits-all well-being program for university students, how effective it might be to draw from different philosophies and different modalities that become a part of a kind of overall holistic way of viewing life, drawing very much from different philosophies and different principles. And to add to that, that um, I actually had the, the kind of pleasure and honor of working with uh, American students when I was doing my master's in the States a couple of years ago, where we got together with se several different departments, dance, um, religious studies, Yeah, there's a movement um, called contemplative pedagogy, um, which looks at contemplation in higher education. So there are networks in that of people using things like um, meditation, prayer, yoga w within higher education. So joining those kinds of networks would be good in terms of seeing how people have, have brought these into these things. Um, I think adult education is is probably easier. Um, I mean. We do some of that, don't we? Like you're, you, I know you're teaching at, a kind of at the weekend university, and so that in adult education, there's often a lot more openness to alternative methods of education than there is within university education. 
uh, and a, a lot more openness, for example, to things like to do around spirituality as well than there is within the big bureaucratic university. So adult education and further education is a good avenue. Um, within Queen Mary, I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't know. Would you, would you know? Um, I would personally say, I would say um, the Student Union plays a huge role in that, mm -hmm. trying to get um, initiatives like this to the students. We've done so quite a few times, but it's, mm -hmm. again, it's been one-offs. Mm -hmm. And um, it's something I, as welfare rep this year, have been working on as well, is trying mm -hmm. to get different initiatives who contact me with their ideas about reaching to reaching out to students and like different things they can do for the students and their well-being, such as um, one thing I'll be working on next year is peer-to-peer -peer mental health services to help each other understand and like get um, understanding of each other's wellness. Um, so stuff like that, I think the student union plays a huge role and whoever is in the student union, they are a huge gateway to the students and accessing the students. And actually, that's a really good example of a kind of self-organising mm. because, I mean, I, today uh, with my colleagues in drama, we were talking about how, how we can self-organise to, 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 to create sort of systems where we can support each other, as it's some of us who are working parents or uh, various other sort of situations that we find very stressful. This sort of self-organising seems to me to be really crucial. I was really struck by something Candice said, which is that we, you know, we've all got to take responsibility for making these changes. Like, because part, partly I feel overwhelmed and daunted by how impossible this all sounds. Who's going to take responsibility for it? Who's going to do something? But perhaps we, we all need to, to make these smaller interventions and changes where we can. I attended um, a few weeks ago, it was the roadshow for the University of Mental Health Charter, uh, which is an initiative that kind of came around from you know, what was happening up in Bristol, um, the, the education minister or the HE minister kind of set aside like a hundred grand or something just to look at initiatives. Um, and I attended a few focus groups and we were talking about like the built environment, you know, is there a place where a band can practice? It's a great idea actually, mm -hmm. just steal that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are no spaces for students within mm -hmm. the halls just to chill out. You know, mm -hmm. they close more of them because they have too many parties in there. So uh, they've killed off that spirit of rebellion. But they were also like just thinking about you know just the language we use and staff well-being. So I'd keep an eye on that. Actually, that's that's going to be like a big piece of work, and um, it's going to be a big document. I think we'll we'll probably have to sign up to it. Mm. <laughs> I think that's probably going to be uh, required by all the universities. Mm. Um, so just yeah, have a look at that. So, so just following on from that, I mean, I think we just lost uh, the knowledge of how to how an organisation can be healthy. I mean, it is, we're not unique. There are yeah. lots of organisations. Big businesses need to know health and safety standards that they exist. Mm -hmm. And it all comes down to relationships. It all comes down to, you know, you, you love your work because of the people and the person you work with, and you leave your work because of the people and the person you work with. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's recognising that. It's, so it doesn't have to be superhuman strategy, but just learning, remembering the lessons that we already know from other organisations, industry, private industries like Fedfed. It's straightforward and honest. If it's a problem, you know it's a problem and you mm. deal with it, but it's done in, a, in the kindest way possible, isn't it? Well, I suppose um, people who are doing the good things leave, don't they? They yeah. get kind of poached because yeah. they're good and there's a lot of movement of labour um, and then a whole kind of great initiative just disappears. Yeah, repeatedly, all the health and safety standards, they're all about your relationship with the person you work with and mm. your line manager. It's all about that. Mm. And if that's not going well, the world seems a very bleak place, mm. you know, and, and we haven't really learned that lesson. You know, some time managers, you know, I'm probably like that. You know, you, 
busy looking at your computer or you're trying to mm. do this. You just don't value it enough. Is there something as well in the nature of academia that we want to feel appreciated and like we belong, but academia trains us to be critical and trains our critical faculties and kind of peer review means basically, uh, you know, I, I, I was amazed the first time I did a talk at an academic conference. I thought it went dial and the questions were so hostile. <laughs> and that's kind of normal for academia, isn't it? That's kind of peer review. Well, uh, not necessarily. Uh, maybe it was just about paper. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I, so I don't know what the, pa the panel or, or the audience think, whether there's something in the nature of academia, which is firstly extremely cognitive. Um, it's, it's kind of people who've got to where they are today by being very smart and very mm. cognitive. And secondly, uh, that, you know, sharpens critical faculties and whether that leads to people not feeling kind of uh, like appreciated or like they belong so it I don't know is that what why is academia worse than other sectors do you think at dealing so with I think this? there is a, an argument about cognition and uh, increasingly cognitive demand and having to do that faster and faster and achievement but I, I don't think the hostile intellectual aggression is necessarily good academia I think mm. there's just been a model of that you know, um, particularly in medicine, you know, it's like teaching by humiliation, you know, uh, mm. when we're a student, how, how it was done, you know, you would take him apart, then you wouldn't forget that lesson, as it were. That just doesn't work, and it's wrong, mm. and I think it's changing, but it's changing too slowly. Mm. Um, and there is a look at um, how to make academic life better and more fulfilling, as well as it being productive. So, But I think there is a real issue around um, intellectual. And also, um, this might be a bit controversial, but um, there is a variation in the population population of autistic traits. Autist people with autistic traits are the, are the group who are least recognised to have poor mental health or challenges in emotional relationships. And of course, I don't know about you, but in academic environments they do brilliantly, yeah. um, but they're just bloody hard work sometimes mm. to you know, work with and actually don't notice how unpleasant they're being or how mm. other people, you know, they just they miss a circuit as it were as to what's going on. Mm. So there is something about that as well and recognising how academic work is, is attracts particular types of individuals mm -hmm. and particular gains. And, for some, that might be their way to the future. You know, that's their only achievement, and they're much more invested in it than anything else. And they've made mm. such a sacrifice that they've got to succeed. If they're coming up against challenges, they're going to sort of bulldoze their way through. So I think there's mm. all of that is mm. true mm -hmm. as well. Um, There's also your great point about perfectionism, which mm. seems to me to be. Sorry.
find about your work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This um, is training first aders within different departments. If I got that right, so that that's the first year and second okay. year. And they go oh into okay, schools, so no, yeah? No, that's not what I there, there, there's not, is this the same scheme where the students then go into schools and teach? And I think uh, the university should be really proud of this and kind of promoting it, knitting these different initiatives together and putting it on a big sign saying, we're proud of this, rather than leaving it to us to kind of toil away and not, not meet each other even, you know. And some cash, yes. Yeah. Yeah. stuff that's happening that we know about mm. for sure i'm I, i'm afraid we have to wrap up now um uh, i did see your question but perhaps um if, if you are free to stay we can uh we can have this space until half past eight so anyone who wants to <laughs> please do stay and stick around i'm afraid i have to go um, but i just want to thank you again uh, all of you for joining it was a really interesting conversation thank you Thank you. 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 Thank you.